0: Welcome to Roll to Save, the RPG history podcast, Slay
1: Industries.
2: Hello and welcome to another Roll to Save roundtable. I have got Steve and Jason here as usual. Gents, how are you doing? Yeah, good. Thanks, Hello, Bemoaning the rugby
3: a bit. But full of Sunday roast and got a beer in my hand and looking forward to tonight. Yeah,
2: we've already agreed that we're not going to talk about the rugby for <laughs> reasons of Jason's mental health. What about you, Steve? How's it going across the pond? It's gone. It's gone pretty good. I guess, then we're probably not going to be talking about the football either, Ian. So uh, no, we're not. The football's football. Is yeah, good. I, I uh, Football is off topic with my dad as well right now. So, what gaming stuff have you chaps been doing the last few weeks? I mean, it's been almost a month since we had our last podcast, and Jason, you were heavily D Slightly less D and uh, Still doing a lot online. Got a Mate
3: of ours, Sandy's just started off a Dark Heresy campaign for us, so that's kind of quite nice. Do like a bit of grim dark that, and I've been hemorrhaging cash into Kickstarter for Merg Borg. So I've literally, if it's got a yellow background, it's getting bought at the moment. But I have I been guilty the of that yet. as well.
2: <laughs> I've I never actually made it. <laughs> I get freaked out by the rulebook the other night because it's on my bedside table because I've been reading it. What I didn't realise is it has glow in the dark writing down the side. Oh, awesome. And I, I woke up randomly at about three in the morning and looked over and thought, like, what the hell is that? That weird, strange That's Scandinavian cool. horror game. Yeah, looking forward to getting it and giving it a try. What about you, Steve? Other than your mountain of painting that you've done nothing with, what else? Uh, have
0: you- yeah, yeah. to be fair, I've uh, been sort of house-sitting for the last few weeks as my wife's been out of town. Hopefully she'll be back in a couple of days, which would be nice, because I've been mostly binge-watching crap on Netflix. But uh, other than that, we've been uh, doing... Uh, We've been doing a and d Rick and Marty one shot with uh, my kid and a couple of, uh, and a couple of friends, which has been an interesting experience. I'm not a Rick and Marty fan at all, but some of them are. So they get all the jokes. I'm like, it's a little weird. but because you're old. Yeah, yeah it's because I'm old and I don't I don't get Rick and Marty. That's been entertaining. And uh, just yesterday, I got to do another run of Arkham Horror, which we lost horribly. played a Marvel Villainous. I don't know if you guys have ever played a Villainous, but it's that's an actually really interesting board game So I just it, picked it up, actually.
3: I just yeah, picked it, it up this uh, couple of days ago. The, the the Disney one, not the Marvel one. So it's the same thing. It just looked kind of interesting and i you know fancy being the bad guy for a change.
0: <laughs> yeah, I own I own the Disney one and my kids own all the Disney expansions too, but like the Marvel one had has it's definitely worth looking at, apparently, because they they tell me there's a lot of interesting new mechanics in it and it was it was a blast.
2: It was a good times. But yeah, that's that's about it. Yeah, like Jason, I've been... And I, believe, I blame Matt after our last podcast when we talked about Mork um, Bork and the fact that he was like, oh, yeah, there's all these Kickstarters out there. I may have backed quite a few of them. And the problem is they're all really reasonably priced. So you're like, oh, that's only that's only $15. I'll put that in there. And then you realise... I think one was three
3: bucks or something. Yeah, exactly. Why wouldn't you? You know, It's a price of a cup yeah. of
2: coffee. Did, did you back the one that's a record? No. I, I may have backed I don't, oh, I, a record, don't have a record player i am not with a record player in a Exactly My years, turntable's
3: but, in the loft That's not happening So yeah.
2: Anyway We're not here to talk About what we're doing Because we have two very special Guests with us Because this is our Sleigh Industries round table We are delighted And Jason and I will try And keep our fanboyism Under control But we have Difficult. got Jared Errol And Mark Rapson From Nightfall Games Here to talk Sleigh Industries with us Welcome gents How are you doing?
0: Yeah good Thank you very much It's been a busy day Looking after three children In in lockdown as it has been for the last however many months or years it is now but otherwise been good I, I, I like you guys have just had a, a lovely roast dinner so i'm nice and full so if i do fall asleep mid-conversation it's nothing personal
1: Hi, and i'm jared that was mark so you can tell our accents apart even though we're both english in spite of the fact we work for a scottish games company <laughs> me i've been not had a sunday roast but i have been doing a bit of gaming albeit playstation instead of actual role-playing.
2: Hey, nothing wrong with PlayStation games. Yeah, I lost, pl- I was to Elite Dangerous recently.
1: Oh, right. I've been playing that. I actually backed that when it first came to Kickstarter. I got my first name as my commander name on the PC. Nice. But on the PlayStation, so I'm Commander Jared on PC and Mac, but I'm Commander Jared Earl on the PlayStation. You'll find me flying around with them sometimes.
2: My son is an avid video gamer. He loves video games. Mm. And my wife is not. And my wife has seen me playing elite dangerous and she's like this is the most deathly boring game you just <laughs> you just fly around you don't seem to do anything you just seem to dock places and my son who is i say loves video games he sat down with me once like why are you mining things this is boring dad go and fight people I'm like it's because i'm terrible i'm rubbish at fighting so gents i'll ask you both the same question we ask everyone who comes on the podcast the first time when did you get involved in RPGs? What was your first game and what got you dragged into the hobby and eventually, in your case, publishing?
1: I think I started, I can't remember if it was 1979 or 1980, in secondary school. A friend of mine got a copy of D&D and that was pretty much it from then on. I then played D&D for a bit. Then, then I moved from my school to France with my brothers and me and my brothers played D&D for an awful lot. Hello, Scott and Elliot. And then I moved back to the UK a couple of years later and ended up in Nottingham, where I sought out more D&D and ended up at the Asgard Miniatures Games Club. At the back of the Asgard Miniatures was uh, one of the old original miniatures companies that made fantasy miniatures in the uh, early 80s, I think late 70s. And they had a games club that ran in the back of their shop every Saturday. And I'd already decided I was going to help out in the shop on Saturdays, whether they paid me or not, because I, I wanted to be around gaming. And then I ended up taking, helping out with that games club. People like Jez Goodwin of Games Workshop, who makes miniatures, was actually one of the players there. His character sheets were gorgeous. All pencil work and uh, very nice. And then that split from the shop when the shop got closed down and carried on with that club. Then I eventually got a job at Games Workshop in 87, I think it was. As a mail order troll, but it got me, I then started knowing all the guys from workshop because of it and hanging out in the salutation and the other pubs where the workshoppers used to go. Nottingham was the place to be in the, in the 80s. And then after that, I went back to college thinking, I've now, now I've worked for Games Workshop, I now need to make something of my life. And I went back to education and went to art college for a couple of years, studied uh, fine art, art history and graphic design. I helped out a friend of mine who was in, called, he was one of the ex-workshop Eastwood guys called John Marshall. He ran a company called Armchair Sales and they did sales for Fantasy Forge, which is a resin fantasy miniatures and other stuff. They did a game called Cryomech and they got, they moved me up to Scotland to help them out doing the typesetting and because I, I was doing DTP at the time and they were all still manual. So I helped out with the layout and the typesetting of that book and did some of their computer stuff, their database management, all that sort of thing. After Crimec came out, they no longer needed me or this other guy that I was working with in the back of the shop called Dave Alsop. And we were both there for reasons like I was there to do graphic design and typesetting and book production, and he was there to do art. Neither of us ended up doing the jobs we were supposed to do at the end. And both of us ended up not being there very long after the book came out and we weren't really needed for that sort of stuff dave went back to live in air which is on the west coast of uh, scotland and i ended up staying in edinburgh for a bit and then one fortuitous day i was going to sign on because you know unemployment was rife back then and Chaz elliott who's another x games workshop he designed he did the graphic design for chainsaw warrior and all sorts of things like that and he was the designer at fantasy forge and he was driving past in his little yellow mini it was a rust bucket, beautiful little mini. Mark loves his minis as well, so there seems to be a thing about guys and minis. And he said, "I'm going to meet Dave Allsop for lunch. He's wanting to ask me questions about a new game. Do you fancy coming along?" And and that was it. And then Dave and I met for lunch at the pub with Chaz and Anne, who was the third Nightfall partner. If you've read your histories, and me, Dave and Anne started discussing everything. Chaz left us to it, and then they brought me on to help out with a book, and then very shortly after it was clear that we were then a three-way partnership instead of just those two and I moved well I sort of moved to Dave's couch I was then between homes as we decided we were going to all move to Glasgow so I dropped my Edinburgh flat ended up on Dave's couch for a few weeks before we all moved to Glasgow and shared a flat five well technically six of us in the flat and that was nightfall games and we basically did Slay Industries. And that's how I got into it. The only reason that we did it is because we saw how easy it was to do a book on uh, with Cryomex, that we thought, well, we can do this. And nobody told us that it was a big undertaking and that we shouldn't do it because it was too risky. So we just did it. And because we just didn't understand that it was a stupid idea, I mean, really, it was. that We just did it. And it turned out that we... Actually, had something that people wanted to see.
2: It's interesting what you say about um, staying in Dave's couch. I know that in first aid, Dave's couch actually gets a credit in the in the the acknowledgements at the the beginning. A lot
1: of people stayed. A lot of people stayed on Dave's couch when we moved to Glasgow. Dave had the living room because we drew straws. I ended up literally in a cupboard. I shared a cupboard with the fridge, (laughs) and Dave had the couch because he said he would put up all the guests. And there were a lot of them. There was uh, all the artwork ended up on Dave's wall. And we had to, when we took it off the walls, we realized just how cigarette stained they all were. We all smoked, well, Dave was the only one that didn't smoke. I mean, none of us smokes now, but back then it was normal.
2: Well, and what about you, Mark? What what route did you take? Oh, mine's very different, especially to role playing.
0: So I am the youngest of the team of Nightfall now. I'm about five years younger than Dave and a little bit more younger than Jared. I joined, or I got into role-playing games a little while ago, only probably three or four years ago, when I heard about this game called Slay Industries. Prior to that, I had played a couple of times, but absolutely despised the format. I I thought role-playing was just stupid. I just didn't get it, hated it, but I was much more into miniature gaming. So I'd spent a lot of time in my uh, teenage years painting models, much like we've been talking about already today. And then I started to, play those games with just a friend but this was at the time of uh, Warhammer second edition fantasy version and it was just incomprehensible to me or my friend and so we just made our own version of it played that we used to go to his house or my house and spend three or four days playing these mammoth games of miniatures they weren't Warhammer they were our version of it and then I went to university stayed there for eight years in total I wanted to earn some pennies so I went and became a sales. Person and eventually a marketeer in the in the biological industry, and then about seven or eight years ago, got approached by a guy at my local gaming club who asked me if I wanted to get involved in making a miniatures game, which was a game called Warzone Resurrection. Warzone is also has historic connections to Nightfall, loosely as well. But anyway, what we got I got into that. We we produced that game. Really had a lot of fun. I did a lot of the writing, although not the rules writing. And then I set up on my own. I'd made my own game called Devil's Run. And then as I got I got to know people behind Daruma Games, which I know you're planning to talk about later on, and then they got themselves into trouble. And I came along and, and met Dave and Jared. And, and the rest, as they say, is history from there. So my, my background is very different. And then as a result of getting into Slay, I now play D&D at least once a week and I play Slay now once a fortnight with a group of players that are really into it down in the South Coast. But the joy of Roll20 and Discord means that you don't have to be in local facility right now.
2: Yeah, I think Roll20, if they were a, a traded company, their stock would be incredibly high at the moment. Mm. Uh, I know... I mean, Steve and I, uh, we play in in a group and we have made a ridiculous use of Roll20. You know, Jason's done the same. When you were talking about Slay and the way that you got involved with it and how you mentioned it, Jared, that even though it seemed like a very foolish undertaking, you you had something which people liked. One of the the actual reasons that Jason and I became friends was through Slay Industries. We were both playing in a vampire uh, white wolf game And I'm not quite sure what Jason made of me because I turned up late, surprisingly, made my entrance by putting on a very strong Norwegian accent and hurling profanities at all and sundry. But we got talking in the break and he mentioned that he likes Slay Industries. And I was like, I like Slay Industries, let's be friends. And (laughs) for people who like it, it's, I think I mentioned it in the main podcast, Slay could very easily just have disappeared It was what at the time seemed like a very, very niche game and it got bought by a bigger company, but then the bigger company divested themselves of it. But it's just kept going. It has a certain something that people who are fans of it absolutely love it. And one thing that always makes it really unique, certainly to me, is the artwork. That you look at that first edition book and I think anyone who bought it back in 93, it was like nothing you'd ever seen before in terms of the art. There are other sci-fi games out there. There are other dystopia games out there. But this particular one had a certain feel to it. Now, you mentioned, Jared, that all the artwork got hung up on Dave's wall. What came first with the vision for the artwork the concept for the game or was it something that was more blended over time
1: slay industries mostly came from dave's head before i met him he showed me a couple of the old two inch high doodles that were characters of slay while he was at fantasy forge so i'd say that the ideas and concepts came first but because dave is an artist it was whether or not the art came first or the ideas came first It's hard to say because he would have thought the ideas visually as well as the concepts. The art influenced the way we all thought about it. But most of it came from, once it had left Dave's head, the rest of it came from what we played in that Glasgow flat and in the air flat before it. Just as we were trying to develop and make the game playable, make the world playable. The visual style of the art was in our heads because we were, like I said, it was on the walls. We were surrounded by it, including some of mine that never made it in the book because I was okay at drawing. But when I suddenly saw Stuart Beale's stuff and Chippy's stuff, and obviously Dave's stuff as well, that it was all there. I realized that no matter what I did, I'd never be as good or more importantly, as quick. I could do a nice picture, but it would take forever. Um, And my skills were much better set uh, put in other directions it was a waste of my time to try and be an illustrator for Snake. but the idea is it was a very visual world we lived in and that set some of the tone so i'd I'd say pretty much it was probably the ideas that formed the art that formed the ideas
0: i I think as well having spent a lot of time now with both dave and Mm. jerry i think you, you, you one has to remember that dave this is what Dave thinks about pretty much all the time. You know, he's got a day job, which is artwork, but he is literally thinking and concepting stuff in and around Slay every single minute pretty much of yeah. the day when he's awake and quite possibly while he's asleep as well. And I think this is something that, the therefore, the depth of the game and the nature of the game and the scope of the game is so much bigger than pretty much anyone else could do because, you know... We've got other things going on. We haven't got that commitment to the game itself. And Dave yeah. really has. And Jared and I get the opportunity to sort of help create by, <laughs> by allowing him. He allows us to bounce. We bounce things off each other. He talks mm. through things with us. But And also, to be fair to Jared as well, he's also been absolutely critical to this. I mean, I think my feeling is that a good creative always needs... Best mate to talk to, someone to bounce ideas off of. And that's the role that I think Jared has played absolutely blindingly over the last 30 odd years, not only because they are best mates, but also because they love to talk about it. And you know, I, I I've been to pub meetings with them and I know they go to pub meetings with other people and, and the conversation is always about sleigh, and it's been that way for 30 years because. That is what Dave always wants to think about and does
1: think about. The reason that Slay Industries second edition was able to happen was, I mean, a lot of the ideas were discussed over the last 10 years in pubs. And that's one of the things that's been hard about this pandemic is that we can't go. I see Dave once every six months right now. I mean, we talk a lot. We're we're on constant chat all the time, Facebook Messenger, whatever. But we haven't been to the pub and taken the story further. Because there's about 20% of the stuff that we discuss in the pubs makes it into the book. A good 80% gets discarded, but it gets discussed through that. And then we have our nightfall meetings where the books themselves, and that's where Mark came up recently to, weirdly, to We'll <laughs> tell you this story. It's a funny one. Mark wanted to have a slay industries team meeting which a nightfall games team meeting which we thought was a very very good idea. We've had one before, a little retreat where we go and get a bed uh, an Airbnb and we stay there for a few days and we bash out ideas and we nail down what stuff is going to be.
0: And we Whatever, drink beer and, we, eat and beer. we drink
1: beer, and we eat food and we then go out to the pub. We then go out to a nice Indian restaurant, Air India, very good. So Mark Mark wanted to do this. In Scotland, because the last one we did was down in England. So he found somewhere on the west coast of Scotland, which is really close to Glasgow and to where my little village I'm in a village called Muirkirk, which is on the A70. And he found this place called Air. Dave and I said, Yeah, we, we know air. We know air. We we started nightfalling air. And so he then got this Airbnb. We turned up and the view out of the window was the same view out of the window that we had. Two doors down in Dave's old flat. The Airbnb was literally three windows away, second floor, same floor, three windows to the right of where Dave's flat was. It was uncanny.
0: And it was completely, that was absolute sheer chance because I had yep. no idea that Slay started in air. I had no idea of any aspect of that. And obviously, these guys didn't know that I was booking it in air. I just said, I've booked it in this place called air. I never heard of it. Seats sound nice. It was near Jared, and that was it. And then it turns out it's basically next door to where Slay started. So, scary.
2: I believe the term is serendipitous. Yes, yes, (laughs) very much so. I like what you say about the sort of almost constantly evolving aspect of Slay because you can see that in the journey it takes. That every time Slay went elsewhere, there was a little evolution of 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 material coming out of the setting of 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 the timeline. Mm. Um, which I think most games need. I mean, you'll see the games that really flounder are the ones who second Ed comes out and it's the same as first Ed, but it's just got different art in it. Whereas Slay has has changed, it's evolved. And I remember when Karma first came out, for those of you listening who have never seen Karma, I will always rave about Karma as a source book because the way Karma was constructed is 90% of it was in-world fiction and articles it was designed as a or it seemed to come across as a sleigh operatives lifestyle magazine it's the sort of thing you'd buy in world to find out what the latest and greatest was coming from sleigh industries and there's the rules were sort of crammed away at the back and as i said on the main podcast nowadays that's quite a common device but back then that was completely revolutionary i hadn't seen any other companies who'd done anything like that it managed to maintain that same stylistic integrity that the original had whilst introducing new things. Moved the plot along, it moved the world along, there were inventions. I know that I had one player, as soon as he got his hands on karma, I was like, I want to play a Vebathon, can I be a Vebathon? And I'm like, oh, bloody hell, I'll have to go and read up on these things. And that was a a bookkeeping nightmare, but it, he had a lot of fun with it. It's always seemed to evolve slightly every time something new come out. I mean, Jason, you own virtually everything slave related would you say that's a fair assessment? I think it's a spot on assessment I mean what well, every time you got
3: something new it was like the date moved on a bit and actually that's even more so more true with the version 2 because what is it 15 years later or whatever for, from the 900 SD that we're used to in first ed it is like it's constantly evolving I was kind of really hoping with first ed certainly when karma turned out we'd get more of the same that came after and we'd get one for science friction and we got dark lament and so forth, and we get different. Each one would be from one of the subsidiaries, and, and you'd get all the information on that stuff. But sadly, that never happened. But still, got great hopes
1: that might happen in uh, version two, guys. Just a suggestion. Well, well, the reason that the style of books changed after Karma is if you look at the credits, you'll see that Dave and I didn't do as much. We, pre- I wasn't involved in the bo- involved in the book production for Mort, for instance, at Wizards of the Coast. I was sidelined to the IT team while Dave was sidelined over to Seattle. And it was neither of us were actually involved in the day-to-day running of the Nightfall design team as it was then. And that we think that shows. Definitely and shows. Yeah.
2: I you a I would say that <laughs> I, the one that it shows most in is the Cubicle 7 Cannibal Sector 1. Because well, I, yes. I bought that. I got Jason that for his birthday because I'm a good friend. I, and I was reading it after I bought a copy for myself. And I'm like... This doesn't feel Slay Industries. And when you, especially when you got to, there was a, I won't spoil it for anyone who might want to read it, but there's a, a platinum BPN included. But you read through that, it just doesn't seem to gel with stuff that's gone before. Artistically, it looks incredibly different. And I, I believe that was the last thing Cubicle 7 released for, for Slay Industries.
1: I think Hunter Sheets 1 might have come after it. Was it? Okay. But it, well, I, I don't know, actually. You might be right. Uh-huh. Well, there are several reasons it doesn't feel right. The first being it's print-on-demand. And I I have opinions on on print-on-demand. I think it's a great idea that I will never use. It's a brilliant idea. Print-on-demand is revolutionising the way that role-playing games are made because people can have smaller print runs. I don't like print-on-demand. And it's purely for personal reasons. I I like to have a lot more control over the printing, which is why if you look at CS1 and if you look at Slay Industries 2nd Edition, they are very, very shiny books.
0: Wait, and you mean by CS1, you mean
1: the new CS1? The new CS1, yeah. I'm going to now finally tell the tale of the glue for Slay Industries.
2: Okay, First folks, this, of this is an Studios. exclusive for all Slay fans <laughs> who have joked about this all throughout the years. Tell us about the glue.
1: Me and my girlfriend, now wife, drove down ooh, ooh. Oh, to oh, by the, the way, princes. We, oh, yeah. A wait a minute. Yeah.
0: This is big news. So how long have you guys been a couple without being married?
1: 27 and three-quarter years. How long have you been married? Three weeks? Two weeks? (laughs) Two weeks. weeks
2: Congratulations. Congratulations.
1: Better late than never. (laughs) (laughs) We started going out, I think, a week after Nightfall Games officially became a company in April, uh, 1993. I couldn't drive. She has a car. So I got her to drive me down to the printers. This is immaterial, but it shows how you get a book printed back then. I took my Atari ST that all of the book layout was done on with the hard drives were they hard drives? No, no, they were floptical drives, 20 megabyte floptical drives running off a SCSI bus. And I took them down to the printers because the printer said they could accept PostScript. And this is '93. This is this is early DTP years. And I plugged the stuff into their system. They couldn't get it to work. But I left them with the printed out book layout, which had basically off the inkjet printer every page of slay. And the printer started looking through that. And they suddenly they looked, okay, we can do this. And then suddenly I saw their faces drop. And they said, there's, there's there's a lot of black in this book, isn't there? There's a lot of ink. This is, you're doing more black ink than we would normally do on pages. And he says, yeah, we're, we're full bleed black with black background with everything, this, that, and the other. So they said, this won't work. We can't do it on the, I think it was 80 gram cartridge they were originally planning, on 80 gram, very low China paper they were going to do. And they said, but we do have paper that will take this amount of ink And they had some art cartridge, a lot of it, which is basically drawing paper. The stuff you would get from, which is why whenever you see a signed copy of the Sleigh book, you can sign it in pencil, you can sign it in pen. It signs beautifully because it's printed on drawing paper. And we paid normal paper prices for very, very high quality paper so that we wouldn't get too much buckling or they wouldn't have to reduce the amount of ink or anything. Uh, So they printed the book on Art cartridge the problem was that is very very hard to glue in because it's not the same sort of paper they were anticipating on using perfect bound they would normally do something like saddle stitch or other blah 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 technical 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 they wouldn't normally do that sort of thing with that sort of paper and because of that the glue wasn't in uh, wasn't as strong on the paper as it should be and there you go. That's why Slay... Now if you go and have a look at your original copy of Slay, the first orange <laughs> cover, as it's called, even though it's not orange. Now check out the actual paper in it and feel that and think of it as drawing paper and you'll suddenly realise, oh, hang on, that's very nice paper.
0: I've got quite an amusing story. I, I picked up Mort via eBay, brand spanking version of Mort. And I, 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 this was when I started to get into it. And I, it arrived through the door could tell it was never been opened; it never been read and i thought i'm going to sit down and have a cracking read and what i did was i opened it up and there was a big crack and all the pages fell to the floor because basically <laughs> the glue had failed so my cracking read was just that but just not, just not in the way i was hoping for
2: so what i want to ask you about next is obviously 93 you release Slea industries yeah it proves to be very popular and then this little-known games company called Wizards of the Coast. That I think they were doing something in the early 90s involving cards. Yeah, in. some weird thing. Yeah, some weird thing that I've got involved in Magic Arena, actually. My son and me have both got involved in it. And I'm like, oh, no, this is going to be another money sink.
1: The reason we met Wizards of the Coast is we wanted to be in the trade hall for European Gen Con or Eurogencon 93. We really wanted to be in the trade hall so we could sell slaves. We took far too many books. We have no idea what we were doing. It's our first proper big convention. We basically wanted to have a trade stand, which we could then man all day. But instead, what happened was they chucked us at the back of the demo hall because we were, we were late booking and they didn't want to, they sold all their good spots. So they put us in basically purgatory where we'd have a table to sell things on. And two stalls to our left was another company they'd also put in Purgatory, a little-known company called Wizards of the Coast. And they were they were literally flogging magic off their stall to anyone who would come along. It was, they had, I think it was Beta they were selling, or Alpha, there was some Alpha left, but it was mostly Beta cards back then. One of the reasons they, want, they sent over one of the bosses, they sent over Lisa Stevens to manage the stall, who now runs a company called Paizo. But she came over and she was looking for a company or a partnership that could deal with the money for them to pay Carter Mundy, because they needed somebody in Europe to pay for magic cards, which are printed in Belgium. But they came over and started looking through Slate. And Lisa picked up a copy of Slate, started looking through it and laughing, called someone over and said something comparing us to White Wolf. I can't remember exactly what it was, but apparently we were out White Wolfing White Wolf with the the quality of black and white art, which was... Very, very pleasant coming from her. We didn't realise who she was at the time. And eventually they got talking to us and said, do you fancy becoming our UK office? And this was literally our first convention. And we were outcasts like them at the back of the demo hall and didn't know really what was happening. We'd never heard of Magic the Gathering. I and mean, it was only when we went over to Seattle in December that year that we realised what it was. And they were showing us this thing called Antiquities that they were working on. And that was it. That's where it all
2: started. It was shortly after that that, sadly, Wizards dumped all of their RPG lines. I think that was in 95. Was Slee instantly sort of acquired by Hogshead, or was that, a, was that a couple of years lull there?
1: Wizards of the Coast decided that role-playing wasn't making as much money as Magic, Somebody from Wizards of the Coast who was one of the ones responsible for that decision later said it was the wrong thing because role-playing was still making money, just not magic money. Of course, they then went and bought TSR a few years later, so they got back into it. It was at European Gen Con or UK Gen Con, I think it was called Loughborough, 96, 97, I can't remember. But I was there as Wizards of the Coast, I think. And I met with... I think peter adkisson was there and he said oh do you guys want slay back and on dave's behalf i said yes and he said i'll give it back to dave then that was it wizards of the coast then gave us well they gave dave slay industries and we restarted nightfall games with a guy called tim tim Dodopoulos, who was part of the nightfall design team in on mort and he said he would then publish it and look after it. I took delivery of all of the books into my garage from the Belgian warehouse that Wizards sent us for free, which is very nice. So we had some stock. Tim then took over. David and I went our separate ways. He went off to work in video games. I went off and carried on my IT career. Hogshead licensed it from Nightfall Games and started publishing it. Which we always thought of, thought of as vindication because one of the very first reviews of Slay Industries was James Wallace, who ran Hogshead, wrote a bad review of Slay Industries in his magazine at the time. But we still liked James. I mean, we got on well with James anyway. No, I took it personally. And he was probably right on some of the stuff. But then we, we felt vindicated when Hogshead took over Slay and thought, yeah, OK, we were right. And it was it was right around
2: the sort of, I think it was 98, that there was leaked on the internet the, the sleigh Industries Writers' Bible. Yeah. i vaguely bigly touched on that on the, the history episode
1: of yes. the, the podcast. How did that all come about? The problem was, is it was, when, when we describe it as the Writers' Guidelines, it wasn't even that. It was going to be the Writers' Guidelines, most people will have a copy of it with some of stuart beale's scale drawings people say oh where did these come from there was stuart beale did some drawings of all the races in sequence with all their heights um in in silhouette and that's part of that same pile of book of documents that was going to be the writer's guidelines we have a pretty good idea of who did it it's not worth dredging up stuff but it was never supposed to be released And they weren't guidelines on what to write. They were guidelines on what the backstory was that we would eventually be telling over over books and books and books that they could then write for Nightfall Games without breaking the future that we were building. Anyone who reads the current second edition Slay Industries will know that we've not given up on where the story should go. The foundation is... How uh, best to put it? There is a foundation that we that hasn't changed since nineteen ninety something. The telling of it was incomplete when when it was in the writer's guidelines, and also unedited and um, un, what's the best way? Not put in the right direction. People was going, oh right, so basically it's all a dream, which isn't quite right until we then took that phrase and then stuck it on its <laughs> head by by. Saying that's the way they see it in the world with dream entities.
2: I remember Jason, you actually showed it to me because you you got it, I think in nineteen ninety nine or something, and you're like, "Hey, do you want to come and see this?" And we sat and oohed and ad over it. I mean, what did you think of it?
3: I don't, this is the thing. It's, it's the, the weird thing is, we I'd spent six years, I guess, by that point with Slay without that document. Did it matter to how I ran my games? No. Was my was my truth the same as what was written down in that document? No still isn't right okay and it probably will never be because that's the that's the beauty of a role-playing game it's it's mine you know yes i'm taking the seeds of what dave and Charity and all the other people have contributed and and produced but mine will never be the same as yours will never be the same as Charity's, and certainly won't be the same as dave's okay so you know did it affect me I, i guess the problem i had suppose was early on what one of the things that ultimately attracted me to the game when i first saw it was guns kill was so who's the truth I, I love a bit of like layered conspiracy stuff going on in games and and the whole fact that there's something more to it so that that hooked me and then there wasn't a truth in the book <laughs> so it was like ha. Ah! Okay, now what? And you sort of mm-hmm. just had to make it up, but that wasn't a bad thing, I don't think. So, I mean, I've literally, I've still got it on my file system here. Mm-hmm. I've just found it. I, I probably haven't opened that document in, you know, probably since we even looked at it. I think,
0: think it's it, it's hard to know how to compare it to something that, that people will understand as to what that document is and what it should be considered as. But I think the best that I've come up with so far is George Lucas, when he wrote Star Wars, he he had originally a plan of nine, nine movies from the beginning. He eventually focused down on, on what we now know as A New Hope, and then he made the, the next one and the next one, and then there was a big gap. But the key point is, and this is where it's comparable, the general big broad brushstrokes are what he planned at least for the first six movies but you look at episode one two and three and it is not anything like he had put out and planned on the documents that have been leaked of his and you know even even episode four which was the first one he made the characters names have changed certain characters have changed species certain characters don't exist certain characters came back later so for example Mace Windu was a name in the first draft that never got anywhere and, and then it reappears as a character in episode one two and three and the character of Mace Windu is nothing like what he planned it's just the name because Samuel L. Jackson came along and said I want to be in your movie and George Lucas says yes you can and you can have a purple lightsaber if you want it In a way, it was a good marketing idea because we're still talking about it 30 years later. But equally, it's a shame because it does ruin it and then people condense it down to it's all a dream, which clearly it isn't. It's not basically Bobby coming out of the shower in Dallas. It's so much more complex than that.
2: It also goes hand in hand what we were talking about earlier with the ever-evolving nature of it. I remember when... I first downloaded the data packets that you guys put in Drive-Thru RPG. Mm. I got the Ursa carry one first. I was like, oh yeah, this is cool. This is sort of nasty I can put in the game. Then started downloading the other ones. And you're left like, whoa, hang on a minute. What did, what did I just read there? That's really similar to some of the stuff that was in that document. It's changed slightly. And when you look at the uh, the data packet on the Dream in particular, it's got entries in there that are almost having fun with people who were decrying the truth as it was. You mentioned, Jared, the, the new rule book. If you're picking up Slave for the first time, you will not notice it. If you're a long-time slave fan, the opening piece of fiction and the closing piece of fiction are a big invitation to get on board with Sleigh Industry 2nd edition and see what's, what's, what's coming next.
1: I, I wrote that last piece on the last page, but I I stole chunks of it from what Dave wrote about the dream entities in the Cannibal Sector One book, the good one, mm-hmm. Cannibal Sector One book. Um, <laughs> but but I knew that most people wouldn't have read Cannibal Sector One. It's this, it's a big book, and not many people did.
0: And that's yeah. that's, that's that's another real. Real shame, really. That that book, the the second *Cannibal Sector One*, the one that that new *Nightfall* produced in two thousand and eighteen, I think it was. Now that book is absolutely unbelievable. When one looks at the level of detail, the quality, the amount of art, and the fact that probably only eight hundred people have seen it, it it, it really is a shocker. Because that, if that that book is just, if you're a slave fan or you want to be a slave fan, get that book. It's unfortunately first edition rules so not the same rule set but there is a conversion doc but that book is just a joy i mean the amount of love and effort that dave and jerry put into it and then shep and myself put into it once we came on board it's just unbelievable it's not got the love it has and it should i'll be honest it should have won awards when i look at who wins awards and what they win awards with that book (laughs) should, should be up there
2: I've actually got a text I sent to Jason with a picture of the, the good CS1 book. And I think I entitled it something like, what am I holding now that makes me cooler than you? Because <laughs> I, I, I backed the Kickstarter. I originally backed it for the book. And I mentioned it on our, our mm, history podcast. Yeah. That was a Kickstarter that very rapidly got out of control with what was being promised versus what it was originally meant to be. And the book is absolutely beautiful. It's full color. It, I mean, it's thick. You could concuss someone with that book quite easily if you yeah. wanted to.
0: But It's the f- biggest book we will ever produce.
2: The the actual quality of what you've got in there is background it's completely new. Even compared to the stuff that's in Slay 2nd Edition, there's stuff in Cannibal Sector 1 that isn't in Slay 2nd Edition. And in fact, that little n- nod that you have at the end of Slay 2nd Edition of the, the line of we are all dream entities, that actually crops up at one point in Cannibal Sector 1. And I found myself right. rereading it. I was like, whoa, is it is this like the biggest spoiler ever? That yeah, it, the, whole,
1: like the whole Blackwood story that people just, were, just completely missed. It's Yeah. Doing that Cannibal Sector 1 book proved to us that we could do Slay 2nd Edition. If we hadn't have done that, if we hadn't fallen down that path, we, would, we wouldn't have ever been confident enough to do 2nd Edition because we'd have thought... There's, there aren't enough people there aren't when we're, we're not large enough we we'd never get it done in time if it's just like the data packets. just me and dave in the pub
0: this is another thing because i don't know whether you guys were planning to touch on it but i'll bring it up now anyway there's quite a few people that have decried nightfall certainly in the period after cubicle seven uh, and maybe during cubicle seven for not producing enough but when you take into account that it was dave and jared 100 doing it in their own time it's actually quite impressive what they did do And then we were lucky enough to sort of be in a position to do Cannibal Sector 1 and do it the way that Cannibal Sector 1 was meant to be done in the beginning. I became aware, as I said, uh, of Slay Industries about a year after that Kickstarter had happened. And the reason I became aware of it was that uh, the gentleman in charge gentleman called mark wallace i'd become aware of uh, via shows he used to be a mantic rep and then he he'd set up uh, daruma with with these guys so he was my first point of contact i just set up my company to make miniatures for myself and for other people we were cost competitive and we were in a bit of a battle with a colleague of mine who I'm really good mates with, but he was doing a similar thing. And both he and I had come out of Prodos Games and that's a gentleman called Rob Alderman, who now is in charge of Lord of the Rings and Blood Bowl for GW. So he's done amazing. Another good lad. Really good lad. And what happened was Mark Wallace had been using Rob to make his models. He'd also been using Prodos Games, which was the company that I was part of before. So anyway, I got to know Mark Wallace. seemed a nice enough guy. He paid for things. He, he got us to do casting, uh, design, and then and then casting, etc. So anyway, they came and saw me, him and, and his brother, who were the two non Nightfall directors, and asked me to buy into Daruma and I looked at it and I asked them to give me the due diligence that I would need. So um, previous bank accounts, etc., all the, all the finances, and they were not able or not willing to give them to me. I believe the first one not able and long and short of it was, I realized that there was no way that I could come in and take part of Daruma because it was, it was a sinking ship. I then spoke, by that point I got to know Dave and Jared a little bit better and mainly Jared. Cause obviously Dave, doesn't want to get involved in that sort of thing, and fairly so. And so Jared and I talked about it, and I looked at saying, right, well, instead of me doing it as Word Forge, I'll do it with you guys. And then it just became clear that the miniatures was not where it was at to me. You know, the miniatures are, is, is a very crowded market, and obviously Slay is a, is a role-playing game. That's what it is. So I I said to Jared, and I'm sure he can remember it, Look, there's no way I can I can help you if it's just the miniatures. We've got to we've got to be involved in the whole thing, and that's pretty much what we did. Um, I I brought in a guy who's a good mate called uh, Chris Shepperson, who uh, is a he did he did the Rules for, A Second Edition, and he was one of our writers. It was bloody hard work. We knew that we were on the solid ground, and we knew that we would prove to people that we were going to make this happen. And as an example, we have done the second edition kickstarter and it's out there most people have got it we proved it in our abilities and i think unfortunately slay has or nightfall has been caught up with a number of people that haven't been able to do the job that i fit in this company as a result slays never really met met its full potential And, and i might be being arrogant here but i'm not suggesting that i'm giving it its full potential but i'm certainly giving it better potential than it had with anybody else
2: I think the thing I loved about I, mean, I finally had the Kickstarter arrive. So I got the, the bag and inside the bag, there was a book, yes. and there was a bunch of models. The models are still unassembled. The book was <laughs> the first thing I, I went for. And I, I do miniatures war games and I like painting minis, mm. but... That was never what I was in for. I think you've, you summed it up quite nicely. Slay is not a miniatures game. There are tons that, of miniatures games out there. It's an expensive cutthroat market. You know, if you want to go up against Games Workshop, all power to you, but 40K is still going to <laughs> dig a grave and just like kick you into it. Yeah. But having a new Slay book was absolutely wonderful. And the, at and the risk of I'm not like a complete fanboy, the quality of that book was amazing i mean the artwork the writing just the way it was produced i still haven't read the miniatures rules i have to confess because they're kind of crammed it. away at the back yeah. but all the other stuff was i was slightly terrified you included stats for digger and then i read them i'm like no i'm never using that in a game that's horrible well, that, they're,
0: they're, they're there for a completion and they're there to terrify people and that's exactly what they do
2: the other thing that really stood out and i'm putting on my Nerdy hat here because I'm I've been a project manager for the last 23 years or so. Is the communication when that Kickstarter was in its initial phases? There were communications going out every week Hey, great yeah. news, guys! We've unlocked another stretch goal, we're going to include this exclusive mini, and blah 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 blah. blah. And I was getting more and more nervous every time one of those came through. It's like, stop promising more minis, yeah, they're, they're expensive, they take time to make. But then there were those huge lulls of silence, yeah. and. That's what's really difficult as a backer when you get that. And it's the same in, quote, unquote, the real world when you're a project manager. If you're not communicating with your stakeholders, they're immediately worry, worrying and coming up with the worst case scenarios. And that's why I said I was never surprised when the email came through saying, oh, we're going to be delayed. Like, of course you're delayed. You've not spoken to us yep. for you know <laughs> six weeks. However, when Nightfall took over, you guys communicated, I would say, weekly. Not only did you communicate to say, hey, look, we're still here. We're doing stuff you had a breakdown of here are our work processes. We have this many pieces of artwork to do. We have got this many pages to set. We've got to proof this, we've got to get this to the printers, and here's the status of them. And you did exactly the same with Slay second edition. And when you have that level of communication, backers don't mind if things slip because you're being honest i mean with cannibal sector one you have to be very honest and say there's a bunch of stuff that's not happening you guys have to make a choice do you want this or do you want that you can't have both if you want the whole thing delivered i think that's an incredibly beneficial form of communication to have i think it's what gets you the loyalty that that's why i think second editions kickstarter was such a success because the people who were on board for that were like well these guys talk to us and they give us updates, and they're honest about it. I mean, when you consider, even with COVID, the delivery of Slay 2nd Edition was pretty much flawless as Kickstarters go. Yes, there was a delay, but when yeah. you got a global pandemic, <laughs> it's only to be yeah, expected. I,
0: I, don't, I don't think it was... I mean, obviously, from the outside, it would have looked flawless, but we did have some real problems. I mean, Shep leaving was a massive body blow to the team. I mean, you know, we mm. thought that we were a team of four and we became a team of three overnight. And yes, he had written everything he'd promised to write and he'd done that quite a long time before. But we missed him when it came to proofreading rules. It, he was the rules writer. So now we have a gap or we had a gap in our team uh, with him leaving because you know and, and and again he 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 offered to help and he did help us even when he'd left but the problem was he's no longer invested in that. He's gone off. He's now doing his own thing and we were continuing to live it. So there was problems and there was issues and and, and we had other things as well that, that caused a few problems here and there. But what, what we discovered by the cannibal sector one Kickstarter when, when we took over was that communication is key, but I do also fully understand how people can get to the point where they can't communicate. You know, I've I've had a Kickstarter that really has gone not not to plan at all. And, and, it can actually be emotionally affecting, you know, you can, you can have like a almost panic attacks about going on to that Kickstarter, because, again, some people, no matter what, can't remember that this is a person behind this company, they can't remember that there's real life people that have got things going on. I mean, for example, during this Kickstarter, my father was near enough that he knew enough died and then he had to have a liver transplant and all that sort of stuff and all that emotion added to the pressure of a kickstarter that might not be going well if if that was the case can be detrimental i mean unfortunately i backed a kickstarter a little while ago called healer dice and the guy behind that died during it i don't know what he died of but i think he died of suicide because of the pressure he got under as part of the kickstarter and this is the other thing you know we had to really have some some strong discussions about this because as as I said to you before, you know, this is this is Dave's life, Slay Industries. And mm. you know, if, if we hadn't have made that Kickstarter work and happen, Slay would have been dead because yeah. we'd have lost so many people. We we might not have lost everybody. We probably wouldn't have lost everybody. We would have lost enough people that it would no longer be viable. Mm. And yeah. that was that was the key thing. And we you know, I saw I saw us turning around the mess that was cs1 kickstarter as a marketing opportunity a marketing opportunity for new nightfall to show what it could do and at that point new nightfall was four people that were working our nuts off if you mind the expression to make this game happen and david david been doing all of this even though it was so bad before we took over david still been pumping out artwork on a, a regular basis for no money whatsoever you know, that that CS1 book is basically a labour of love from four blokes who spent a lot of time, effort and money that they still haven't seen a result of and probably never will. Yeah, as you say, fortunately for us and, and hopefully because we showed that we, were, we cared and we, we fixed it, people supported us. And as you say, we did – the kickstart was more than double. But when you take into account the, um, the pledge manager as well, it's more like triple the amount that um, the first uh, Accountable Sector 1 did.
2: Well, speaking of that, second edition, as I mentioned, has come out. Yeah. I, I have my my grubby mitts on on my copy. Me too. Mm-hmm. Yep. Steve hasn't because he's an electronic loser. Doesn't like tangible things. I, I couldn't. I couldn't look at the PDF. You were such a spot with the PDF. I, I was so excited when the PDF came through, and you're like, "No, I'm waiting till I get my book. I don't want to talk about it just <sighs> now." <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of glad
1: you're... I did because yeah. it, it, it's a lot beauty, more popular. Right? yeah a lot of people do that a lot of people said well i'm not getting the pdf i'm going to wait till it comes out i'll i'll wait till i can buy it in a shop fine we'll sell through retail no problem yeah. at all <laughs> oh you no don't no care when you I get was, it yeah
3: you know, it was a no-brainer it was going to get kicks
2: i clicked the button it was like i'll oh, just just take my money please yeah but no. we, we, we were uh, very much at the so so how which one of the top tiers are we going to go for then well it was <laughs> in
3: fact, I actually got the top tier and then they kept adding top tiers yeah and it was like, oh, guys, I've got to
0: week this month, you know. <laughs> well, you know, that was really, really amusing because obviously we went to Kickstarter with with our expectations, and we'd we'd obviously we'd already decided at the very beginning, you know, we would only maximum amount of pages we would have would was, was two hundred and twenty four. We would have a GM screen with a sixteen page doc and whatever else. There was there was very little that came along that was additional. But what did come along that was additional was the two different cover versions. The, the, um, the wall one, which is this one here, which I I know it's a podcast. So this one was the first one we did. And then um, as we were doing this, we were talking with a gentleman called uh, Johnny Hodgson, who's a very good friend of of Dave and Jared. He suggested we look into these leather bound ones. So we did, but obviously at the beginning of Kickstarter, we had no plan for them. So if you actually, if you're that way inclined, you have a look at the graph for the Slay second edition Kickstarter it breaks every single rule of a kickstarter with regards to the shape of the graph because it's got two peaks midway through and that's because the first one was the first um the wall version of the book and then the second much bigger one which surprised us even was the leather bound
2: that yeah. be when i changed my pledge
3: I, I i had to i really had to struggle i was like oh, i want it <laughs> it's so pretty <laughs> uh, i just oh, so yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I kind of I, I do kind of regret it now
2: no. I'm conscious we're coming up for time here, so I to ask Mark and Jared, both of you, what are your top three things in second edition? And I'll start with you, Jared.
1: Oh, God. Uh, uh, the
2: pressure. <laughs> the top the index. Three things that I would, uh,
1: yeah. Index is all Mark. Index, <laughs> index has nothing to do with me. Well, we know it wasn't in first ed, was it? Nope. <laughs> nope. Didn't have the software to do indexes back then. Um, I don't have it now. It's just my head. Know. Yeah, like I said, it's all mark. Indexes are all mark. I don't. I think people should discover the book by reading it and memorizing it. <laughs> that's not entirely true. Um, the thing that I liked about second edition, the three things that people should notice. That's a really tough question. I think people should read as much of the background as they can because. Well, because we put a lot of work into it. I also really, really love the GM screen. And I love the MORT map. And I love the fact that we got artists in. The fact that it's not just Dave doing it, struggling, breaking his fingers. It's all based on concept work from Dave. But it's nice to see when you write something, and then someone who isn't the guy who normally draws the stuff you write draws it. And you think, oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. But the things I think that people should read is... For Slay 2nd Edition, they should go and buy Cannibal Sector 1 and read it. The the 352-page book, it's got so much stuff. So the three things, yeah, Cannibal Sector 1, the Mort map in the book, the one that's the vertical side. Mm-hmm. Don't try to ascribe too much actual physics to it because it's an Impressionist, detailed... It's a detailed Impressionist piece. I love the fact that it's... That the the black pages come out properly, the white pages come out properly, and there are some hidden things in there that no one's found yet. That There you go. Oh, third see, thing, that's a the challenge hidden things though. That haven't
3: oh, found. You can't do that.
1: <laughs> For instance, I will tell you the one that I hid in Cannibal Sector 1 before we get to Mark's favourite things. In Cannibal Sector 1, there is a piece of fiction that they've wrote about the dream entities where they walk into a stadium and every single book is open with a knife through... Page, says he's looking it up, page 33. Anybody got a copy of Cannibal Sector 1 on them? Turn to page 33. And this goes for the listeners at home as well.
2: Oh, the tension is unbearable. <laughs> That's
1: not so, good. Yeah. I haven't got mine handy. That's not good. What a shame. Oh, what no. a shame. Then then I'm going to leave that as an exercise.
0: Okay,
2: I know one. what I'm doing as soon as this call finishes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah me too. <laughs> um, just and, to confirm, Just to confirm, it
0: is that page there, yeah?
2: Yep, that is the one. Right. Mark, what are your three things?
0: Well, I think for me, we've got certain things that were talked about by, and and we haven't mentioned here, but that, that got cut. So, for example, vevathons are no longer, and there's talk of them in the book, they're mentioned, but that is, you can consider that a seed. And all I will say is, Kroger's report three. The other thing that I'm really proud that we've got in there is the Gators. The Gators are updated from the originals that were presented via a, a very small hunt um, data packet. Uh, but I really like them and what they do now, and I, I like the the whole concept of, of basically Storm has been designed for the job that they're for so you don't get all these ones that you don't get these, these silly ones that's everywhere and all the time you'll, you'll get very specific gators almost like wild cats or something like that that are very specific to the environment that they do so gators are on the wall grit stormers are in the cannibal sector what what, what else will come who, who will know and then i think yeah I, I mean i am pleased with the index because i think it's a key thing and hopefully it's useful for people to find what they need so um yeah to be fair that was jared and i because jared pulled all the headings and then i've rejigged it and done whatever needed to be done to get it to work so that's my take your credit take your credit <laughs>
1: and thank
0: what was quite you funny is when, we, when we released the pdf um they beat the beat the, the alpha pdf we hadn't got around to doing the index and it was just a uh, something else at the time, and, and a couple of people got really angry at us because it, wasn't, <laughs> it was useless. It's useless, but they haven't said anything about it since it since it actually exists now. I don't know. Whether they have they said
1: that they want a bookmarked PDF, which I'm working on. Yes, well, that'd be nice.
0: Yes, that would be awesome. Yeah. That, w- that that was.
3: Uh... The,
1: and I will get it working. Then the next version of the PDF will be updated once my other tasks are off the table, which are numerous. But after they're off the table, the bookmark PDF will be
2: out. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the GM screen. My son was rooting around the other day and he found the GM screen. And for those of you who haven't seen it, it's a a (laughs) four-panel screen. It has this amazing piece of artwork with these poor operatives (laughs) that have been ambushed by all manner of nasties from the world of progress. And when my son saw this, he went, that would make an awesome movie because it has a very <laughs> cinematic a feel about it. There's a, a stormer about to punch a greater gat carrying in the face and all sorts of stuff going on there. But the GM screen, it's also, it's suitably thick. Some GM it's, screens nowadays are a bit kind of flimsy. It'll thing- a blitz around, man. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> well, oh. you say it's cinematic. One day I will tell you the trip of uh, Dave and Jared go to Hollywood.
2: Oh, Okay.
1: You're on. We did that 10 years ago and nothing came of it. But we were invited out and we stayed uh, with a Hollywood producer for two weeks trying to organise it. Just couldn't raise enough funds.
2: The next Kickstarter. It's just thinking that. (laughs) Well, no, there's no...
1: The the one thing that we've learned from our miniatures uh, foray, we should stick to doing what we do best. We're very good at role-playing, even if we say so ourselves. 1,200 backers agree with us we're very good at doing this that's what we should do
2: what we normally do um, because i'm conscious we're running up to time is you've been great guests and thank you very much for all the anecdotes and the behind the scenes looks that you've you've given us in recompense for having to put up with our chutney tell us about some projects you've got coming up in the the future i know for example you've got the terminator uh, role-playing game coming up but what else have you got coming up?
0: The Terminator RPG um, should be launching this month, end of end of February, and we're very excited about that. And we think it's it's going to be awesome. Uh, lots of. It'll follow a similar pattern with regards to how the Kickstarters run as we did with the Slay one. And then uh, we've got two other projects in our pipeline. The first one is uh, the next part of Slay. So for those people that have bemoaned the fact that we're, Slay doesn't come out very much, uh, you can expect a new Kickstarter in June. And what I will say is if you look in your books uh, in the first page, big black black and white page on, I think it's on page, where are we? It's called the opposition. Six. The pages in question, five and, six, five, is it? five and six. Let's just say the next Kickstarter starts with the letter C. Thank um, you for the That's list. that. <laughs> we're hoping that we will also be producing a uh, the first of what we're calling our Splat books, which is basically character um, sort of species driven. So we've selected two of the species that we want the uh, the playable characters. So to give you a list of the name, you have got the humans, you've got the frothers, you've got the Ebonite, you've got the Shaktar, you've got the Wraithan, the uh, Advanced, carrier, yep. Carrion, the Stormers, the Neophron. Two of those uh, have been selected and will feature in a, uh, a two-part book with great depth on them and their nature.
1: To reassure people, the Terminator kickstart will not impact the work on any Slay books.
0: This is a really good point, actually. So what we're doing is Dave... Dave has naturally taken ownership of Slay production and Slay. He's basically the product, the project manager for Slay. And I am doing the same job, but for Terminator. And we're hoping that, uh, given the finances that we hope that we will garner by continuing to do a good job, that uh, Jared will then take over the third project. And then I will take over the fourth project. And then Dave will take over the fifth. So the three of us over a year will in effect, produce a project each at minimum. And then obviously, if we do get big enough um, that we we take on more project managers, you can expect a fourth project, a fifth project per year, depending on how it works.
2: Fantastic. Now, one of the things, one sort of closing thing I'm going to go for here. We we talked about it briefly earlier. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Progress Report 3. So for those (laughs) of you (laughs) listeners who have not yet seen it, the Nightfall crew produce these progress report magazines you get them in drive-through rpg and they include things like fiction they include new antagonists generally new stuff you can put into the the world of progress i like to think them they're almost like mini karmas they have that sort of breakdown of bits and bobs for your world of progress can you give us any inkling as to what might be in progress report three we can. We can, yes. <laughs>
0: so uh, we've got, we've got a, a story written by um, a gentleman who's part of the, the Terminator rules writing team, and his name's Bart, and he's written a, a very nice, very sh- well, a short story called Incense and Cordite. We have in-depth details around the Vever fonts and what happened to them. We also have a five-part campaign seed for using the veva fonts in the game, including
1: rules, I made a noodle bar. We have a noodle bar. There you go. <laughs> Seriously, I'm giving you a noodle bar. That's all you're getting <laughs> from me. There is a Slay Industries Discord that we do not run. Uh, that we allow. Allow. It's the wrong word. There's a Slay yeah. Industries Discord that we're happy to visit. And on there, I was having a chat about CS1 and how underrated the book is. And I thought ideas of a campaign and thought all all these war movies are like that would just drop in straight to be cannibal set to one scenarios. And I've got the seed for a campaign, the introduction for a campaign that I hope to drag out over progress reports three, four, and five, and maybe onwards. Just little ones, little bits. Think of a war movie. There you go. There it is. In
0: second edition, we've got a double page spread about The Pit as well. And um, mm-hmm. when that was originally written a long time ago, it was more sort of like about the structure and the nature of it. But as we got towards the end of the book, we realised that we'd much rather tell you all about the music of The Pit, including um, Shaktarian Death Ballet or whatever it was called. I forget now. but. Um, folk. <laughs> That's it, sectarian folk. So um, the writing that was going to go in there, we've we also put it into Progress Report 3 as well. So it's got, I think it's going to, I don't know, I mean, Jared, do you know yet how big this document's going to be? Because it's fairly I <sighs> it have a page
1: count. Yeah, it's, it's at least 16 pages, I'd say. More than yeah. that. But something yeah. like, I mean, expect it to be 12 to 16 pages and be surprised when it's
0: more. It's a good mix of stuff. And as you say, it's, in a way, it's the the child of the Karma magazine approach, because, you know, these are things that we want to tell, but they don't necessarily fit in the books that are yeah. come in, including the Veverfonts, fonts, for example. I mean, I wrote, I, I really wanted to sort of tie them off and um, yes. hopefully this does that. But obviously, they're not something that we want to talk about, particularly in a, in a published book, but they're great yeah. for this, this situation.
1: The, the the problem being is the Slay Industry's second edition book was 224 pages and it took a year, almost exactly a year, to go from Kickstarter to in your hands. If we'd have done as much as we wanted to do for the book, we'd still be on it now. I think I think it's become fairly clear through the discussions we've been having here where uh, why exactly we were really happy to get mark (laughs) because mark makes you know our strengths one Mm. one of one of the reasons that you survive this long is you learn your strengths and you know your strengths and you know when not to try to go outside your comfort zone And we're really good at at putting books together really good at that we have the role-playing books we have to acknowledge that but we also have to acknowledge where we're not good and the fact that mark can also write as well make make makes him because if you've got to be able to write if you've got to join nightfall that made it a very very useful partnership
0: what, what would be really interesting really interesting one day, and it's again, it doesn't really matter, but it would be really interesting to see if anyone could identify who the writer was from these books. Cause, you know, as I yeah. say, this book has got four writers in it. It'd be interesting to see if anyone could work it out, you know, what was a Dave and Jared and what, what wasn't, maybe.
2: That's actually a very good point. What you see I think it's one of the the strengths that you've actually seen with really since the beginning. Is you guys are very good at using different voices. There are some companies that they have certain writers and you can tell when certain people are writing because of the style or the way the characters act or whatever. One thing you've done very successfully at Nightfall is you've managed to have different voices when they're required. And it's not always a, oh, well, Jared obviously wrote that because the characters always sound the same. Anyway, gents, on that note, thank you so much for taking the time to. To come and talk talk with us we've largely sat and listened because jason and i certainly are huge fans of slay industries so it's it's been great having this this time thank you again gents this has been an absolute pleasure and we wish you all the best with these kickstarters that are coming up and you're, doubtless you're going to see me and jason dropping a load of cash on them as well so
0: thanks yes, thank that. you very much Good. thank you
1: well if- before I go, I'd like to give a quick plug for Shep, who was a rules guy. Uh, he's got a Kickstarter out, for um, well, the Gaia Complex. And also keep an eye on what Handiwork Games, who's John Hodgson, one of our closest friends, Handiwork Games and Nightfall Games. Spend a lot of time talking. Let's like We that. should
0: probably. We should also probably mention uh, our friend uh, Steve Turner as well. And of course, uh, Steve
1: Turner, yep, who helped, who was very, Steve Turner was instrumental in the, the putting together of the deal that became mark joining nightfall
2: yeah excellent
0: brilliant our
1: friends noticed as well
0: yeah and thank (laughs) thank you guys very much for this really appreciate it and it's been a joy i hope we haven't rambled too much
2: not at all not at all no this is this has been a, a real a real pleasure for us
0: are you sure it's not sla
2: And that was our Slay Industries roundtable. Thanks again to Jared and Mark from Nightfall Games for taking the time to indulge us. It was a pleasure having you on the show, gents. If you've not already done so, please take the time to check out Nightfall's Terminator Kickstarter. We're sure it's going to be a great game. Likewise, all the supplements we've talked about in the podcast, the Cannibal Sector 1 rulebook, the main Slay Industries rulebook, and the various progress reports, can all be found on drive RPG just search for Slay Industries we're a monthly podcast about the history of tabletop role-playing games if you'd like to get in touch with us you can find us on Twitter at Save Podcast or you can mail us at roll.2.save.pod at gmail.com you can also find us on Facebook by searching for Roll to Save if you enjoyed what you listened to please leave us a review on your podcast directory of choice. Those five stars really do help towards visibility and we appreciate each and every one we get. Thanks again for listening and we'll speak to you again next month.